Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Our guest today is Professor Harriet Stevenson, who joined the Albers School faculty in 1967 and served until 2014, nearly 50 years as a faculty member in Albers. First and foremost, Harriet was a successful teacher known for her enthusiasm for the material and relentless encouragement of her students. She taught primarily in the areas of small business consulting, social entrepreneurship, and entrepreneurship and small business management. Harriet received a number of impressive awards during her years here. This includes the Paul S. Sarbanes Spirit Award in 2007, a national award for her work in social entrepreneurship. In 2006, she received the Academy of Educational Leadership's Outstanding Educator Award for Innovation and Creative Teaching. In 1985, the U.S. Small Business Administration recognized her as Small Business University Advocate of the Year. In 1998, she received the Silver Star Award from the Washington Small Business Development Center. She also received several teaching awards, including the Seattle University Alumni Distinguished Teaching Award in 2009. For many years, Harriet played a leadership role in the Small Business Institute, a nationwide program that supported small businesses with student consulting teams. This includes serving on the board of directors and president at both the national and regional levels. Harriet was well known for the strong performance of her students in SBI case awards. In 1989, she founded the university's Entrepreneurship Center and served as director until 2005. This was an important contribution to the Albers School and the campus, and she remained active with the center throughout her time at the university and even in retirement. While she was director, she started the business plan competition that is now named after her, the Harriet B. Stevenson Business Plan Competition. So welcome, Harriet, to the Leadership Playbook. It's great to have the opportunity to interview you and to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Albers School and get your insights on some of our history. So first question I have for you is, what got you into business? Why did you want to become a business educator? Where did that come from? Well, Joe, (laughs) first greetings to you also. Thank you. Where it came from, historically, my mother actually was a uh, teacher, and I had been looking at that. But my whole background actually was was business. From day one, it seemed I was being entrepreneurial, doing things, cutting asparagus. My brother and I ran a swimming pool. It was just the orientation. And then in school, my first year... I had always wanted to be uh, President of the United States. So I hadn't thought of anything else. But my first year in college, I took political science. And wow, the instructor allowed us how maybe, maybe that wasn't for me. And <laughs> it was kind of in no uncertain terms, kind of burst my bubble. And that was my freshman year at Stanford. And so I decided, wow what major? And so I decided, well, I'd try education. And then I wanted to be able to finish in four years or something. And uh, my brother was in college. 
he was studying his MBA program, and uh, that's probably the best way to go with this. Also, it looked like a really a good way to earn money, and so that's kind of the direction. Could you tell us a little bit about that swimming pool business? It sounds pretty interesting. You were in Walla Walla at the time, right? This was really fascinating. My grandfather built a swimming pool in Walla Walla, probably the first one. It was out in the country. When I was five, my parents moved back to Walla Walla. My mother had been born there, but they had gone elsewhere. She'd gone elsewhere. She went to school at University of Washington. And when they came back then, they leased the pool. And that's really an amazing experience as a five-year-old, that just the things that that I got involved with, the challenges, the things of diving off. I jumped off an 18-foot diving tower. And these were initial kinds of experiences that the folks with the pool and the swimming, and then all that went on to ultimately my brother, when he went to college, during the summers, he leased the pool and hired me to work. And so while I was all during high school, during summers, was working at the pool, and then when I went to college, I paid for much of my first two years. I leased the pool along with somebody else, and that helped pay the tuition. And a really good, good background. Great. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what it was like to be a woman in business back in the 60s or so. And also, what it was like to be a woman studying business. You were at the University of Washington at the time, correct? Right. It, it was an environment of definitely mostly men. Business was pretty much men in the programs and male teachers. This was the era of uh, very few MBAs were females or very few, uh, very few undergraduates were. So in a way, I was a little bit more silent maybe in class than the others. I didn't tend to be as vocal. Certainly less vocal than you are now, I guess, huh? <laughs> are you trying to cut me off? <laughs> no, I'm just saying. <laughs> you certainly don't hesitate to speak no, up these days, you know, Harry. Just, the memories are flooding back. Yeah. <laughs> so talk about the decision to get your uh, PhD in business and then to get into college teaching and that process. Yeah. You know, when I first got my bachelor's degree, my senior year, the end of my senior year, I uh, did a program through the School of Social Work, a work-study program down at Maple Lane Girls' School, and it was a very valuable program. And then I went on for my MBA, and I was really interested in personnel management. At the time, it was called personnel management, and it was changed to human resource management, and uh, organization behavior, and human behavior. And then I was married, Then I had gotten married the summer after I graduated, and then just as I finished up my MBA, I had first youngster, my husband then, was going to law school. And in my head, I had just decided when I graduated, I was going to get my PhD in business. And so that was the way I, I was geared. And actually, I, I tried just sampling the, the waters about actual work to get some experience, more experience. I, I actually figured I had quite a bit of work experience of various types tested the waters, and I interviewed it for a job at uh, Boeing, a management position. 
was definitely qualified. I was so qualified, <laughs> if I don't say so myself. But I, I didn't make it through the interviews. And then one of the interviewees happened to be a, a woman, and she was kind enough afterwards to explain to me that the reason I didn't get it, she said, you're the, she said, you're the most qualified. But we couldn't do this because all the people you would be managing are males and they don't have their MBAs. So I thought, ah, oh, this is a pretty good mark of what the, <laughs> and so I renewed my enthusiasm for the doctoral program. And it was a matter of if you didn't get it then, if you don't just run on through this, if you step out of the sequence, it's hard to get back. So you decided to get your PhD in business you were uh, raising your first daughter at the time. Then you got your PhD. And how did you end up at Seattle U? Actually, I interviewed several places since in 65. And I was not viewed as a, a viable candidate in some places. Actually, one of them asked just a kind of inquiry about <laughs> what's a woman doing doing this, you know? And so I thought, well, that's probably not going to work too well. So I spent my first two years at uh, Seattle Pacific, and that was an excellent experience for me. There were two and a half of us in the School of Business and Economics. That meant I taught somewhere between, I think it was between 11 and 13 different courses, which really the die was cast. I was a generalist anyway, and that just really helped round me out in terms of, of the knowledge and the teaching style because I had to do a lot of involvement of the students, knowledge I wasn't that aware of. Since there were only two and a half of us, I did need to, I wanted to grow some. And so I interviewed here. And it happened to be a very propitious time here at Seattle U because we were starting the um, MBA program. And this was great. And there were four of us that were hired in the, it's a batch. And of those, Hildegard Hendrickson, who had been my office mate over at the U of W, she and I were both extended offers then. And then what happened on that was very interesting. What appeared to be the issue, in addition to qualifications, the need was so great for people with PhDs in business, which was really rare. The business degree was pretty new then, very new. There weren't that many PhDs in business. So it didn't matter whether you were a female or not. That wasn't an issue. The way it was an issue might have been in how much one was paid, but it wasn't an issue in being hired. And that was a, a neat thing. And you know what happened with that particular facet? That SU, it's always delighted. It was until hmm, 10 or 15, 20 years ago, it had the most women PhDs on its faculty of any school except Colorado Women's College. It was amazing. Every department and area had one. So that was a great opportunity, an expansion phase of here. And it just made room for lots of opportunities. And for the new ones, it made opportunities to be creative and help build programs, which is really very rewarding and motivating. Could you talk a little bit more about those early years when you and Hildegard were on the faculty and how that went and how things may have been back then and maybe how they changed over time 
you know, by the time you retired in 2014, what were some of the more interesting things that had changed during that period of time? Oh, Hildegard, wow. What a character. What a unique, marvelous human being. She had two boys. I had two girls. And we bent over backwards to make sure those were not seen or heard in this environment. And it was a kind of thing of, one time actually, Misty, I think had the measles, but I had to teach. So she was out in the car, you know, while I was while I was teaching, that's what you did. That's absolutely what you did. And I had daycare, but you couldn't see <laughs> them there. And we bent over backwards to make sure we never, ever used them as an excuse or a reason. Nowadays, it's a reason why one might not teach or not show up for class or something. But then we viewed it as it would be an an excuse. And so Hildegard was just a little bit older than I was and had other experiences than I did and was a great mentor and that was helpful. Like the issue on the income with salaries. When we were being hired, we got hired by uh, Jim Robertson's at a meeting down in California at a professional conference down in California. He recruited us down there. And then before we had said yes, He'd extended the offers and all. Hildegard talked with me and said, how much are you going to get? And I don't remember the number. The number was something like 7000 or not very much. And she said, oh, no. She said, you asked for eight. So I did, and uh, there wasn't any problem with that. I, I got it. And on that particular issue, I found out from John Eshelman during his reign which must have been, what, 20 years later, he called me in one day and said, Harriet, I'm so excited <laughs> to tell you that you are now getting paid what you should have been. That is, if things were all evened out, if you were a guy, <laughs> with the same experience and everything. But that was so normal. That was absolutely so normal and natural any place. And so one of the things certainly that has changed through that is the equity and pay. And, you know, here, the community responsibilities, and it was a good environment to, um, to work in because I believed so firmly in what I was doing and had the opportunity to do it here. It was really nice to be able to follow out what you believed in, too. Very good opportunities here. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So to follow up on that, Harriet, you had some opportunities to do some interesting things. What do you think your biggest accomplishment was when you were on our faculty? This very much relates to the fact that when I, when I first got here, one of the faculty members was Daryl McNabb. And Daryl McNabb was working on a program with the SBA. He was working with them. They were doing some student consulting and all. And Daryl, just when I walked in the door, took me under his arm. He wanted me to, I think, take over his the class. He trained me to do the consulting, that whole experiential. And that really got me going in the direction that I really really found to be. And so in 73, they started the, nationally, they started this 
small business institute, small business consulting. And so by about 74, 75, we were involved with that. And the SBA, to begin with, they paid $150 per case. The case that is a student team doing consulting with a business, with a small business. Over the years, they increased that to 200. And then by 1995, they had increased this to 400 a case. And so that first batch was paying for the faculty development to be able to go for the accreditation. Because you had to have faculty development, travel, and that was a part of one of the main requirements. And the university was going through some really tough financial times and really tough because I couldn't, as a director of the program, they didn't let me keep the money. And the money went to the dean's office. I was able to do my professional travel, all I wanted with that as well. As far as I know, it was a significant contribution to being able to help get our MBA. It was just one piece of it. And then over the years, that, that method, that thing of, of getting these students together and getting them to apply and learn through that whole process, interacting with the business community, helping out, some of our, the values of Seattle U really being fulfilled while they're enhancing their education. And also the aspect of, I was in a, a unique spot as far as I taught the business policy, the capstone course. And then for the first many, many years, the students in my class, I taught half the classes, as many as two thirds of the, sometimes almost all of the graduating seniors in a given year would, would go through my class. And we were very big on international recruiting. And many of the time, we'd have students in there just from all different countries. One time, there were as many as 11 different languages. And when we first started to the languages, the students were more first generation. or Their English wasn't that good many, many times. But what an experience that was, we teamed the students based on different majors and international and genders, did the whole, the whole bit. So the students had an opportunity to work together, practicing their communication skills, practicing their management skills, while they're doing something, working with a business owner. So listening to consulting skills and all, we weren't solving some business owners' problems. The deal we were doing was, was working with them to get them to solve their problems. And so the students ended up with this outrageous, like, 100-page <laughs> pulling hair report. But the experience they got, and so we competed then, our teams, on these projects they did and the, what they did for the owners. We took those to the... Um, national SBI meetings and at competition and they just really did great at the graduate level the MBAs or the undergraduate level they did marvelously well I just I really <laughs> I really get excited about this because we were the only ones that didn't we didn't handpick quote handpick as far as I'm concerned our students were already handpicked but what happened was most of them that made it equivalent to an honors course or something. We really showed that students could perform really well. All students could. It just seemed to me that was a really good learning experience for people. 
So as far as I'm concerned, it's a built around that kind of program. It really was pretty influential in trying to get the triple bottom line and business ethics and really carrying it out through the Entrepreneurship Center and, and through the business plans, making sure that we consider the, the social element, the human element, the whole environmental element, the sustainability element. That's really interesting. So the SBA would have been the Small Business Administration. Mm-hmm. They would have been putting up the funding that you mentioned. You know, when we think about the Small Business Institute and the students working with the businesses, we think about the impact on the students and the impact on the businesses. But it's very interesting to learn about the impact on the faculty here in the Albert School and how the funding that you mentioned supported the faculty development for many years. Unfortunately, the SBA stopped doing that program, so we had to come up with other ways to support faculty development, right? Here comes the hero. Here comes one of the heroes, Kent Johnson, the endowed chair of entrepreneurship and funding from that and the Herb Jones, good old Herb Jones. (laughs) He really believed in small business and all uh, and really pitched in there to, to help us out very significant in that whole process. So that really got the dean hustling on other ways of funding, yes. So you mentioned the triple bottom line. Is that something that you started out with in 1967, or is that something that grew on you over time and you developed out as your years as a faculty member progressed? That was the progression that was going on in the in kind of the business and environment, the management, the policy field, that whole concept of profit. Only the single bottom line was what you geared things toward. And then double bottom line, so not only profits, but people. Where it happened in the sequence, I just remember when we first started the MBA program, what we were supposed to be doing was broadening the perspective of, it was mostly engineers from Boeing. And we were supposed to be broadening the perspective and viewpoint of including the human and other, you know, more liberal arts and broader view and ethics. And that whole orientation actually started right out the gate. We added it kind of as a a piece on the business plan competition, uh, an area to look for. That was very, very influential in, in what the students did on their consulting. The next phase on that was, you know, considering even the broader, all the relevant stakeholders, and that includes the things like the climate and the, making things that are really sustainable. So really, elements of it have been there since you started at Seattle University. It's part of our DNA. It is. Switching gears a little bit, you did mention the business plan competition. So. What was the idea behind starting the Entrepreneurship Center in 1989? What led to that and what were you hoping to accomplish? Other schools were starting right around then and other SBI directors from their schools. That was sort of coming along with, it's on the horizon, and a few other places had them. And the whole entrepreneurship thing, it was, it was new when I came out, there, there wasn't entrepreneurship. So that was another fun thing, which was we were able to help kind of carve what the field was. Things were going on in the field and in the areas, and opportunities were obvious, and you could tell the time was right to do that. And we had all of these projects we were doing, 
and that didn't count for business plan competition, but we were geared. You know, a number of the participants in the business plan competition have actually gone on to start their business. So are there are a few that stick out to you from over the years? Yes, and they're all exciting. But the ones I relate to more closely, one was tied also back to Kent Johnson. This is uh, Verahole Health, which is now made some new moves. We're announced it's just this last January, I guess. That particular one, I just love the story on it because Kent Johnson, who got his MBA in, I think, 73, and he was probably one of our first MBAs. And Kent has just been one of the most significant contributors, helpers, mentors, all-around help for the School of Business, which he continues to to this day. And when I was an acting dean for a while, I established an advisory board, and the head of my advisory board was Kent, and I requested that I could borrow, have Kent start the advisory board for that, which he did a dynamite job putting together a very helpful advisory board that and for the Entrepreneurship Center. And then those people all helped advise the students on the business plan competition or on in the classroom doing the cases. They'd mentor. And then so this Verhoel Health, Ryan Schmidt, came to us right at the very beginning of the business plan competition, one of the first. He was really enthused about the triple bottom line. And he happened to have this idea he'd been working on. And so he won the competition on the Vera. And the values of that and the contribution that he makes with that to the whole thinking in the medical and healthcare field is so consistent. It's so neat to be able to say it's kind of had its had a home kind of here. And then Kent Johnson's served very closely as a mentor and on the uh, board and working with them through the whole process and very, very significant contributor to, the, to their progress. So it's been a really neat tie together. I really like it when those things are <laughs> so consistent with our values. Another one I got hooked on when I was a judge for the uh, business plan competition was Elder Grow. And Elder Grow with Orlick and Cannon, when I saw it, I thought, this is really neat because it was using gardening and plants as mental well-being, mental health for older people. And wow, that the whole area of nursing homes, of care, we don't oftentimes know how to really deal very well. And so I, she's really applying and you can really, you can show that the plant therapy really does wonders for people, really helps out. And she provides just marvelous opportunities for people. And this is challenging getting it off the ground and challenging making money on it and getting into a system that wasn't oriented to this. So she's having a real impact. It's nice seeing businesses like that that are having an impact. And other businesses, the Mott Mott, <laughs> they have been in the business plan competition. And, and Mott Mott is a unique model, a combination of the business and the university and the community and sourcing coffee from, is it? Nicaragua, Nicaragua? and Vietnam. Okay, yeah.
it's sold on campus even. And it provides student opportunities to work in the business and provides student opportunities to help free trade. It gives our students opportunities while doing good. Those are just three examples of just so many. It's really it's been exciting watching what they're coming up with and what the students are doing. Very creative, innovative, looking to solve problems that really need to be solved that aren't being touched. Yeah, those are really three great examples. One more question on the business plan competition for you. How do you like the fact that it's named after you? Ah, uh, <laughs> you know, I gotta say, I like it. <laughs> you know, I really do like it. <laughs> there you go, great. So Harriet, you know, switching gears on you a little bit, you know, when people look back at the uh, pictures of Albers faculty over the years, they're always struck by your picture, especially your hairstyle, which has always had kind of a vertical <laughs> aspect to it. How did you get that going and how did you stay with it all those years? It looks great. You know, actually my first two years, I wore a uh, wig. Actually, that had been one of my many ventures too. I went through that wig routine, selling wigs. And, but I wore a, a wig you know, not very, you didn't have to do much with it. And that cut down so much on time. Women spend, we used to spend so much time on hair then. Oh my gosh. A lot of people still do, but not to that degree. And I just happened to like the swoop. And <laughs> I've always liked the swoop and the, and the height. Also, I'm a swimmer. And uh, when you put a swimming cap on me, it's very evident that my head, the proportion of my head to my body is, looks a little bit little. And so I need, in my head, I need a certain amount of height and poofy and... But also, I think you told me earlier that you were raising two kids at the time and that really oh helped gosh. you with that as well, huh? Oh, you do things. Starting actually when I was president of the faculty senate, I started getting my nails done. I didn't have the red nail polish that I have now, but I got my nails done too because this was a professional school. We really prided ourselves on and pushed that for the MBAs and for the undergraduates. This is a professional school. You dress professionally. You look well-groomed all the time. You know, and you dress for the position you want. You look the part. And so it was just part of the me package and I would have not functioned well without it. <laughs> Well, Harriet, thank you so much for joining the Leadership Playbook and giving us your insights uh, on the history of the Albers School. It's been great to have the opportunity to chat with you here. And I also want to take the occasion to thank you for all the many contributions you made to the Albers School in Seattle U over the more than four decades that you were on our faculty. And we've been able to relive some of them here, but I'm sure there's some others that we didn't have the chance to get to. So. Uh, Again, it's been a pleasure to have you with us, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate this opportunity, and, and I appreciate what you did during my years here. You were definitely not, not a biased person at all. You were very helpful, very encouraging. I think you've done a great job as a dean. Well, thanks for those comments, and I'm not counting, Harriet, just for the record. So. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook. 
the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.